I had a great visit yesterday with Pastor Jerry. We spent some time together just kind of doing some, some briefing and debriefing. And, uh, and he gave me this. This is uh, a runner's baton. And uh, he said, uh, this is for you. And uh, it says, uh, lead pastor of the Bridge Church. And, uh, you know, I watched Jerry run his leg of the race faithfully these past 15 years. Got to watch it from a distance, but I can testify that, that he ran faithfully. Now he's passed the baton. And uh, I look forward one day, maybe a year and a half or so from now, to handing this baton off to the next runner. And so um, as we pray for Jerry and Sue, uh, I would encourage you, pray for me and pray for the one that God has designated who will be the next runner. God has him chosen. It's, it's our task to, to discover who that is, to find him, to recognize him for, for who he is, and then to welcome him as, as he leads his leg of the race of faith that we run here as a family of, of God. So um, welcome your prayers as, as I run mine. Let me, um, let me just open in, in prayer as we turn to God's word. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it speaks to us so freshly. And, and I pray that as we approach it now, it would be with eyes wide open to what your word has to say to us, eager to receive it, eager to apply it, and eager to live this week in such a way that you receive glory and honor from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday will be Easter Sunday. We are in a season called Lent. And Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, 40 days before Easter Sunday. And uh, a little quiz, what, what precedes Ash Wednesday? What's that Tuesday called? Fat Tuesday. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of for those who, who lay aside some things, give up some things for Lent. It is one last opportunity for indulgence. There is an American city that's kind of made a legend of Fat Tuesday, and that city is New Orleans, and, uh, and the event is called Mardi Gras, which is French for Fat Tuesday. And so we're in this season of Lent, and, and it, it, it all culminates next Sunday on Easter Sunday. There are some people who pay real particular attention to the seasons of the church calendar. Uh, to specific Sundays. Each Sunday has a specific function, a specific identity. Uh, and, and there are other days throughout uh, the, the Christian calendar or the liturgical calendar, as it's sometimes called, that stand for particular things. We typically kind of jump in at Christmas and Easter, and we don't pay attention to that calendar for the rest of the year. But some people really do. I had a professor in college who was really into liturgy and he was really into the liturgical calendar and, and each day had its own function. Each Sunday, 
there was never any question about what to preach on a Sunday because there's this book called um, the, what, what's it called? Um, oh, help me out here, somebody. <laughs> um, at any rate, it'll come to me. There, there's this, this book that tells you exactly what to preach every Sunday of the year. The lectionary, thank you. Yeah, had it yesterday. Um, so the lectionary tells you exactly what to preach all, all year long. You don't ever have to worry about what to do. And, you know, I, I just thought that's, that's a bit rigid. And so I decided as a sophomore in college to challenge my professor, which is never a really great idea. But sophomores in college don't know that, so we, we do it anyway. So, so I did, and I said, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is an established fact of, of, of history. And so I don't want to come to Good Friday feeling like I've got to be sad and wait to say yippee until Sunday. We, we are resurrection people, after all. We live in the light of the resurrection. We ought to be able to say yippee every day. And he thought about that for a second, and he said, you know, I don't think you can say yippee as effectively on Sunday if you haven't experienced the depths of what took place before that. I think he's got a good point. I think he's got a good point. And this week gives us an opportunity to explore the depths of what happened prior to that first Easter Sunday, that first resurrection day. And so I, I hope as, as we walk through the days of this week in these next few minutes, that you'll jot some notes about scripture passages that, that go according to those days so that maybe you can experience some of those depths a, a little more fully this year and then next Sunday morning we can say yippee together and, and really have something to rejoice over. So Palm Sunday begins this Passion Week or Holy Week. Our word passion isn't really ultimately about romance. Passion is about suffering. Uh, the Greek word pasco uh, you would probably spell it in English, P-A-S-C-H-O, pasco uh, is the word we get passion from, and it means I suffer. I suffer. And so this is Passion Week. This is Suffering Week. And uh, there are a few passages of Scripture that you may want to jot down uh, as you come back to those uh, this coming week. But I'm just going to take Mark's Gospel, um, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, to get us started on this. And um, that, by the way, if, if you grabbed one of the paperback Bibles, is on page 708. And so, uh, and if you need one, there's, there's some in the card in the entryway there. Feel free to pop up and, and grab one. So Mark chapter 11, and we'll just look at verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here, 
If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelfth. That first day of Passion Week, Palm Sunday, named after the palm branches that people put in the pathway of Jesus, kind of like rolling out the red carpet for him in this event known as the triumphal entry. Jesus instructs his disciples to go and find this colt. It, it's amazing. Uh, there it is. And he tells them what to say if they're asked, and, and they do, and the folks release the colt. And so they bring the colt to Jesus, and uh, he comes riding into Jerusalem on this donkey's colt. An onlooker that day might have seen that and said, that's interesting. That reminds me of something one of the prophets said. And sure enough, uh, the prophet Zechariah said this in chapter 9 of his little book. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, not on a white charger, but on the colt of a humble donkey. And what's going on here? Jesus is making a statement. Jesus is deliberately fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I am your king. I am the one you have been waiting for. Uh, all those prophecies that you've read about were pointing to me. It's a statement no one else could make. You ever thought about the number of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled? Have you ever thought about the ones that he would have apparently had no control over? There are some that, that you or I could, by some stretch, maybe try to fulfill, but there's a whole bunch that you and I would have no control over. Think about some of them. Descended from David. That leaves a lot of people out. Born of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem. Taken to Egypt as a child. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Crucified. People cast lots for his garment, buried in a rich man's tomb, resurrected. What are the odds that one person could fulfill all of those prophecies? And Jesus, in writing in and fulfilling one of them on purpose, is saying, it's me. It's me. There was a, a professor of mathematics named Peter Stoner who ran the odds mathematically of fulfilling just eight of 
those prophecies. I don't know which eight he picked, but he picked eight, calculated mathematically based on populations uh, what the odds would be of one person fulfilling just eight of the 456 prophecies. And he came to the conclusion that it would be a number equating to one in 10 to the 28th power. That's 10 with 28 zeros behind it. That number is so large. What it corresponds to is if you were to fill the entire state of Texas knee-deep with silver dollars and have one of them marked with just a dab of nail polish put out there somewhere in the middle of the state of Texas, knee-deep in silver dollars, send someone blindfolded into the state of Texas to walk as far as he or she wanted to walk and at some point to bend down and sort through and blindfolded, pick up one silver dollar and find that it's the right one. The odds are, are amazing that one person could fulfill those. So Jesus is deliberately saying, that's me, I'm the one. I'm the king you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah. And the people's response is to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. And that means, save us now. Save us now. They, they spoke better than they knew. The background for that is Psalm 118, verse 25, which interestingly in the NIV doesn't use the word Hosanna. It says, Lord, save us, which is what Hosanna means. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, by the time of Jesus, Psalm 118 had become kind of just a song that you sing at festival time. It's kind of like a familiar hymn. You, know, you can kind of go through the motions and sing it because you've sung it so many times before and you're not really thinking about the words of what you're saying. You ever sung a hymn or a chorus and your mind just kind of goes on autopilot and, and you get to the end of it and you go, oh, there, there were some good lyrics back there. I should have been paying attention. And so that's the way it was with Psalm 118. Uh, and if someone would have asked them, what, what is this you're saying? They would have probably said, oh, we're just doing number 118. Just kind of on autopilot. But the word Hosanna means save us. And the meaning reveals the nature of Jesus' mission. He came to save his people, not from the Romans, but from ourselves, from our own sin. And he would do that by laying down his life as the perfect sacrifice, taking our place, taking our sin upon himself. At the end of Palm Sunday, Jesus and the 12 go to the town of Bethany, about a 40-minute walk from Jerusalem, that was nothing in, in those days, 40 minutes of walking. That's, you know, real quick commute. And uh, they would stay the night at the home of Jesus' dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, these three siblings. Lazarus, you'll remember from John 11, as the man that Jesus raised from the dead. And so they stay at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and Palm Sunday comes to a close. Monday dawns, and I call Monday of Holy Week or of Passion Week Manic Monday um, because Jesus must have looked absolutely manic from the things that he did that day. Now, who remembers a song called Just Another Manic Monday by a group called the Bangles? You are really old. I, that's all I got to say. <laughs> 
So Jesus looks manic at this. Take a look at the text again on page 708, um, Mark chapter 11. We'll just pick up at verse 12. The next day, so Monday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Sounds like Jesus having a bad day already. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and the disciples went out of the city. Manic Monday, the, the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple, two events where Jesus is just looking like he's lost it. Both accounts have to do with judgment. First, the fig tree. Jesus sees this fig tree in the distance and heads toward it, and, and then he goes looking through the branches, and the disciples must have just been saying, what? is he doing? Everybody knew it wasn't the season for figs, and yet here he is kind of looking through the branches for figs. Mark tells us what they all knew. It wasn't the season for figs. The trees would leaf out in March and April, but they wouldn't bear fruit until June. So Jesus is going through looking for fruit. What's that all about? Well, he is enacting a parable for them. He's putting this on for them to see. Here's a tree that looks healthy, but bears no fruit. And Jesus seizes on this image, this picture, to make a point about people who may look on the outside like they've got it together, but have no fruit in their lives. So that then leads to the next thing that he does, and, and that is he goes to the temple and just raises havoc there. He goes on to judge the people who have taken this place of worship and turned it into a place where worshipers get exploited. People would um, bring sacrificial animals into the temple to offer them as sacrifice for their sins, for their family's sins. And the priests would find reason to uh, disqualify those animals. Uh, these would be animals that these people raised, that, that, that they raised up and, and brought with them from their homes. And the priest would say, now there's a blemish on that one. But I'll tell you what, I'll sell you an animal that is approved. And then they would sell these animals at exorbitant prices. The other thing that they would do is they would exchange ordinary currency for temple currency, and the exchange rate would just be crazy. And so these things, they're just exploiting people who are coming 
to worship. And Jesus calls it for what it is. He drives out the people that are selling animals, and he overturns the tables of these people exchanging the currencies. And the leaders then, Luke, or Mark tells us, start looking for a way to kill Jesus. He is becoming that much of a threat to them. At the end of Manic Monday, Jesus and the Twelve go back to Bethany, where Jesus is staying all week with his dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There's a little epilogue to the uh, Manic Monday story, though, and it comes in verse 20, and it tells us that the next morning as they're heading back into Jerusalem, they pass this fig tree, and they find that it's withered from the roots. This tree that Jesus cursed the day before is completely withered up, and they take note of it. It had to make a huge impact on them in terms of what Jesus will do to those who only measure their spirituality by the externals and bear no fruit in their lives. Manic Monday ends. The next day dawns, Tuesday of Passion Week. I call it Troubled Tuesday. This is a longer section, and uh, you can tell from the readings there. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to read one of those for you, but I, I hope you'll come back to those. Um, this is a longer section because it describes a very eventful day, a, a day filled with opposition from the religious leaders who are now intent on finding a way to discredit Jesus, to turn the crowds away from him, even to get him set up to be killed. So on Tuesday, Jesus and the 12 return from Bethany to Jerusalem, and there he finds the religious leaders ready to take him on. It's a day full of questions and challenges, and Jesus responds to their questions and challenges with parables that make them look really bad. It's been a day called the temple debate, the, the, the Pharisees and Jesus debating back and forth. And these religious leaders raise questions about Jesus' authority, and Jesus responds by telling parables tells a parable about two sons whose father wanted them to work in his vineyard. And one son goes, I'm not going to do that. But he ultimately goes out and does it, works for his dad. And then the other son says, yeah, dad, I'll work the vineyard for you, but doesn't do anything, doesn't lift a finger to work in the vineyard. And Jesus sets that up to say, which, which group do you think you would be in? Which one is most like you? And the Pharisees would know. They're, they're the ones who promised all kinds of things but didn't follow through with any of it. And Jesus tells them that tax collectors and prostitutes, the ones who said, no, I'm not going to do anything for you but end up doing it, they will get into heaven before these religious leaders. These guys look really bad in this parable. And he goes on to tell them another one. He tells them a parable about some people who have been entrusted with the care of a vineyard, and the only condition is they need to give the fruit to the owner. But they won't. They won't give the fruit to the owner. And he tells these people that the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given 
to others who will produce its fruit. Again, the religious leaders look bad. Tells them another parable about uh, a marriage feast put on by a king whose son is getting married. Who's that point to? And the invited guests won't come. And so the king brings in people from the streets and keeps the invited guests out. Again, the religious leaders are pushed out and they look bad. In each of these stories, the religious leaders look bad and they try to trap Jesus with more questions, but just end up looking worse and worse all the time. Jesus finally pronounces a series of woes on the religious leaders, and those are recorded in Matthew chapter 23. He tells them how badly they've messed up what God designed to bring people to himself. And he calls them all sorts of names. He calls them hypocrites, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, a brood of vipers. He blames them for all of the innocent blood that's been shed from Abel to Zechariah, literally from A to Z. Can you imagine how desperately they wanted to get rid of him by the end of this day? Troubled Tuesday. Near the end of Troubled Tuesday, Jesus goes over to the Mount of Olives, which is nearby, and delivers a message that's known as the Olivet Discourse. And in that discourse, he talks about things to come, talks about the destruction of the temple that is to come. He talks about the signs of the end. He talks about the challenges his followers will face before he comes again, but he lets them know that he will come again, and he'll come again in glory. And after that, he and the 12 go back to Bethany to stay the night again with their dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Troubled Tuesday comes to an end. Silent Wednesday dawns. I call it Silent Wednesday because so little is known about that day. The Gospels are largely silent about that day. It would seem that Jesus chose to spend a quiet day in Bethany with his closest friends. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the twelve. Think about it. Jesus knows what's ahead. He knows that when he heads back into the city on Thursday, that he won't be coming back to Bethany at the end of the day. Instead, he, he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be condemned, he will be crucified, and he knows that. So how's he going to spend his last day? He'll spend it with those closest to him. What must that have been like? I, I imagine it as a pretty quiet day, not much said, maybe a lot of sighing, I remember reading in uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about uh, Aslan on his way to the stone table, and he passes by the tent where little Lucy is, and, and she sees his shadow go by, and so she, she joins him, and they, they spend some quiet moments together, but he comes to the point of saying, you have to, you have to stay here. I have to go on alone. That's kind of the picture I get for Silent Wednesday. A day when he could just be with those who mattered most to him. Now, one of the things that is recorded about that day 
is that Jesus is invited to eat at the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Now, Simon uh, the leper must have been a guy who was healed of leprosy, maybe by Jesus, and, and it seems that maybe he wanted to express his thanks to Jesus by throwing a meal in his honor. So he does, and that's recorded in Mark chapter 12. It's on page 710 if you'd like to follow along. Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Don't miss the significance of, of this anointing. She is preparing him in advance for his burial. He would be the one who would sacrifice himself, and she was doing what she could for him. And then two verses that follow, verses 10 and 11, tell us of one other thing that happens that day. It happens in another place. Judas negotiates with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the cost of a slave. And Jesus then overnights in Bethany one last time on Wednesday night. Thursday dawns of Passion Week. We call it Maundy Thursday. Again, each of the, the readings on the screen here reflect a longer section that we're not going to read right now, but could be helpful if you want to read them this week. I think you'll have a rich experience if you go through them this week. But they're back in Jerusalem on Thursday. Jesus sends Peter and John ahead to make preparations for the Passover that they will celebrate together in an upper room setting. And uh, so they make arrangements, uh, make sure that the table is set for them, that the food is is uh, prepared for them, that uh, there will be near the door a basin full of water and a towel for the washing of feet. Here in Wisconsin, when we enter someone's home, we often take off our shoes so that we don't slosh snow all over their living room, but they would have dusty feet from wearing sandals on dirt roads, and so it would be customary before you enter, particularly before you have a meal, to wash your feet. And John chapter 13 gives us a little bit more detail about this. You, you kind of get this picture of the disciples walking in and seeing that basin and look around and there, there's no rank and file household servant to wash their feet. And they go, I suppose I could wash my own, but nah. And they go and take their dirty feet to the 
table where they're going to eat. And one by one, they come in, and you can kind of see them looking at the basin and looking around and taking their place at the table. And finally, Jesus comes and sees that no one has bothered to wash feet. No one has done what a servant should do. And so he gets up and washes their feet. Their master washes their feet. The term Maundy Thursday comes from a Latin word, mandatum, which means a mandate, a command. And the command is this. Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's the Maundy in Maundy Thursday. It's a command to wash feet. Some groups have taken it very literally, uh, and they do foot washings. It's mostly ceremonial. They do it on special occasions. I take a less literal uh, approach to it and suggest that Jesus had in mind that we should be willing to take up the humble task of an ordinary servant, that we seek to serve rather than to be served, that, that we are willing to do but others are not, as we seek to serve in Jesus' name. There in the upper room, they observe the Last Supper. Jesus explains the elements of the Last Supper, the, that bread that symbolizes his body, the cup that symbolizes his blood. And this morning, in just a few minutes, we will reenact that scene, in essence, by observing the Lord's Supper together. From there, they go out to Gethsemane, where Jesus prays and the disciples fall asleep. Judas and the soldiers come, and Jesus is arrested. Then he is taken into Jerusalem. And the night is consumed with illegal trials that go all through the night. And Peter denies knowing Jesus. That all happens Thursday and Thursday night. Friday morning dawns. It just flows right on into Friday morning. Friday that we call Good Friday, where Jesus appears before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who wants nothing to do with him. Pilate understands that Herod, the king of the Jews, appointed by Rome, is in town, and he gets rid of Jesus by sending him to Herod. Herod wants to see Jesus perform a miracle, do a little trick for me, Jesus, and Jesus won't do it. So Herod sends him back to Pilate, and Pilate finally gives in to the demands of the crowd and orders that Jesus be crucified. 9 a.m. on Good Friday, Jesus is nailed to the cross. 12 noon, same day, when it should be brightest, darkness comes over the whole land. It's pitch dark. And then at 3 p.m., the end comes. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus gave a loud cry at that moment. And John tells us what it was he said. Tetelestai. It is finished. It is accomplished. Everything needed to deal with your sin and mine was accomplished at that moment as Jesus gave up his life. It is finished. 
Someone has suggested religion is spelled D-O. And you do, and you do, and you wonder if you've ever done enough to be okay with God. Religion is spelled D-O, and Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. It's finished. It's accomplished. He's done it. All we need to do is put our trust in the one who has done this for us. 6 p.m., same day, Joseph of Arimathea, wealthy man, asks for Jesus' body and lays it in Joseph's tomb. And Good Friday comes to an end. Saturday comes. I call it Sad Saturday. All we know about it is from a half a verse at the end of Luke 23. Verse 56 says, They rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. That was it. That's all we know about that Saturday. But imagine it. These disciples were scattered. They are scared. It is a sad, dark day. They've got a lot of time to think. And they're thinking this did not turn out the way it was supposed to. What's going to happen to us? Will they come for us next? And that's sad Saturday. And then it's followed by Resurrection Sunday. And I will plan to see you next Sunday morning and we can shout yippee together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how your word explains to us what Jesus did that last week of his earthly ministry. And I pray, Father, that as we experience this Passion Week, that we would be attuned to what Jesus did on our behalf and experience the depths of that so that next Sunday we can experience the heights of Resurrection Sunday as never before. For your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Time now for us to take the Lord's Supper. This is not uh, required. Uh, you, you are not required to be a member of the Bridge Church in order to take the Lord's Supper, to take these elements. But I would caution you that, that you must be one who has put their trust in Christ in order to do this. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he says this, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The apostle gives us a warning after that and, and encourages us to examine our hearts before we come to the Lord's Supper and uh, to see if there's anything there that needs to be confessed. And I would just encourage us all to take just a moment now for some self-examination and to agree with God about the sin in our lives, to confess it to him, and to lay it at the foot of the cross. So let's just take a moment to pray.
Father, we agree with you about the sinfulness of our sin. And I pray that we would not indulge it any longer, that we would not harbor it, that we would not entertain it, that we would not feed it, but that rather we would confess it and leave it behind, that you may be glorified by lives lived that are growing in Christ-likeness. Thank you for what Jesus did for us on the cross. Thank you for these elements that remind us of his body and his blood given on our behalf as the perfect sacrifice that takes care of sin once for all. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that needs to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, that that person would say, Lord Jesus, I I see it now. I, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Would you come into my life? Thank you for what you've done on my behalf. I receive you now. Live in me and I'll praise you forever. So thank you, Father, for these reminders in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd invite you to uh, come and take the elements uh, when you're ready. Take them back to your seat. And, and uh, the, the worship team is going to sing and lead us. Uh, just a word about the elements themselves. There's a little cellophane thing that the cracker is right beneath that. And then there's another tab to get you to the juice. And so come when you are ready.